Well, this morning we're going to detour from our study in 1 Timothy and speak about a special day that's coming up soon. Um, As the end of October approaches, often the day that is celebrated, that most people think of, is Halloween. Um, Our neighbor's lawns filled with inflatable monsters and, and Ten feet skeletons. Have you seen those? And ghosts and witches are a constant reminder of the fact that Halloween is around the corner. Um, I'm surprised by how many people uh, admit that Halloween is now their favorite holiday. I do think that's a commentary about the direction of our nation and how um, the gospel is uh, being slowly squeezed out of the common thinking of our general population, that the uh, ideas of Christianity uh, are being reversed, and so that we are embracing more and more something that is dark and, and bleak and, and, and based on horror and death. And it's becoming a favorite holiday for many people. Um, I read that 73% of Americans will celebrate Halloween. And it's significant, I think, especially when you consider that about 85% celebrate Christmas. But Halloween is not the holiday I'm thinking of. The special day I'm thinking of is on October 31st as well. But it's far more important than Halloween. The day I'm thinking about is Reformation Day. And maybe you think of the 31st as that as well. I hope you do. Uh, Reformation Day is uh, a day in which we celebrate how the church was called on to change. The church was called on to be reformed. Reformed meaning remolded. Reformed meaning that you, you put pressure on those areas that are out of order and begin to form it back to where it needs to be. If I, if, if I were to ask you, what Bible verse comes to mind when you speak of the birth of the United States of America, or better yet, what Bible verse would you accredit as being the reason for the birth of the United States of America? It's probably something your high school history teacher did not mention to you, or your college professor. Anything come to mind? What Bible verse is responsible for the birth of the U.S. of A.? I would say it's Romans chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17. This is how it reads. You may want to open there. Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. It reads this way. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. These two verses here change the soul and in the life of a monk named Martin Luther as he studied in the original Greek language as he studied the book of Romans back in the early 1500s. 
these verses transformed his life. These two verses here. And, and I say it is the reason for the birth of the United States because without Luther's study of these words and then his subsequent transformation of his soul, there would not have been a John Calvin in Holland who piggybacked on what Luther did in Germany with the Reformation. You see, these two verses here ignited the Reformation. You are here today as Christians who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior because Luther, back in 1517, was used by God to begin the Reformation. And then John Calvin piggybacked on what Luther had been doing in Germany, but he did it in Holland. And if there had not been no John Calvin, there would not have been a Reformation in Holland as well. And if there not had been a Reformation in Holland, there would be no Dutch Puritans or pilgrims, as we often call them, who would have made their way to the United States. And if there were no biblically-centric Puritans in the U.S., our history as Americans would be far, far, far different, and our liberties would be far less as well. See, these two verses here are responsible for the American states. But it's far more important than simply the history of America. What we see here in these two verses is the beginning of a renewed church of Jesus Christ. These two verses. So let's begin this morning by taking a look at how the church, early in its centuries, de-evolved instead of being picked up, grown up, maturing, it spiraled downward. Let's take a look, before we even get into the text, let's take a look at the condition of the church when the Reformation happened. At the time of the Reformation, again, 1517, the Roman Catholic Church was the only church that existed. It was the church that we see in Acts chapter 2. And it took on that name, Roman Catholic Church, because why it was established in Rome, it was Catholic, meaning universal. The word is a very good word. It's a universal church. And of course, it was just that. It was a church. It was the extension of what we see in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we see that people believed and gave themselves to Christ. And early on in the centuries of the church, we see the same thing happening again and again and again and again. And the church of Christ just growing, 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 and growing. People who received Christ as their Lord and their Savior. And they became, of course, the body of Christ, the church. Sometimes referred to as the bride of Christ. The word church means the ones who are called out. In the Greek, the word is ekklesia. However, as the centuries passed on from the church's inception, which was around the year 30 AD, the church began to change and move further and further and further away from what the Bible says. Further and further away from the scriptures. 
Now, the history of the church is rather long. I think it's rather perplexing and even complex. But what we do see in church history is the disarray of hearts, human hearts, that profess Jesus Christ with their lips, but their hearts are not in it. They know the religion, but they do not know the Christ of the religion. They know what the Bible says, but it is of no interest to them per se. It was just simply something they said they believed in. What are you doing this Sunday? Why, it's Sunday. I'm going to church. Why? It's what I do. It's what I do. The church devolved into a a downward spiral and it abandoned the foundations laid down by the apostles. If you take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, it reads this way. This is what the church is built on. It says the church is, quote, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, we all know how important a cornerstone is, right? The cornerstone of a building is the first block to be set, and that cornerstone will level the building, and it will determine the direction of this building. Christ is that cornerstone. And the teachings of the Old Testament and the teachings of the New Testament, what the apostles taught, are the foundation for the church. The foundation for the Christian life. What happened early on in the church history is that the church, known then as the Roman Catholic Church, moved further and further away from these essential teachings. Christ being that chief cornerstone, eventually had to share with his mother the role of being redeemer. In fact, even today, Mary is considered a co-redemptress. So that Jesus Christ is not only the only redeemer, his mother as well. And if you were to take a look at church history, you would find a great amount of intrigue and political wrangling. It's such a shame. Wars, passion, threats, adultery, incest. That's right. We're not talking about a soap opera here. We're talking about church history. Bribery, scandal, superstition, a quest for power, a quest for riches, divisions, doctrinal disarray, heresy, and deception, and all sorts of corruption. These are all the makings of a rated R movie. And this is church history. British theologian and now professor at Grove City College, Carl Truman, writes, In 1500, the Roman Catholic Church was all-powerful in Western Europe. There was no legal alternative. The Catholic Church jealously guarded its position, and anybody who was deemed to have gone against the Catholic Church was labeled as a heretic and burnt at the stake. The Catholic Church did not tolerate any deviance from its teaching. As any appearance of going soft might have been interpreted as a sign of weakness, which would be exploited. In my opinion, if you want to read a good horror book, 
pick up a good volume of a church history book and you'll be shocked at how the church has acted over the centuries in the name of Christ for power, for riches, for sex, for money in the name of Christ. It's awful. But I do recommend you pick up a book, a volume, and read it. Because there you will also see in church history the grace of God. In fact, I believe you will have a renewed admiration for the bigness and the deepness of God's grace that he would forgive and save even these people, even us. So pick up a volume and read it. In church history, you'll discover the side of God that we take for granted. Church history will help you discover the immeasurable power of God's grace. And the Reformation itself will show you that God's purpose will always stand. Sometimes we wonder, don't we? When we consider what's happening in the world even now, two major wars, the threat of a third, where is God? The Reformation will show to you that God's purpose will always stand. My friends, please know that Jesus Christ said, and it is clear, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. We are the victors. The church is victorious. You, Christian, are the victor. The Roman Catholic Church also inserted herself as yet another mediator between God and man. The church taught that, taught that God's grace could be bought. If you don't have enough of God's grace, hey, listen, you know what you can do? You can purchase some. Literally, purchased with money. Um, those who could afford it could buy indulgences. And those indulgences were a means to, uh, of paying for your own sins. So if Christ didn't forgive you for that sin, well, you could buy an indulgence and, well, you could find forgiveness through the church as long as you put money on, in a plate. It was sort of an, a, an amnesty from punishment in the afterlife. And by the way, today, indulgences can still be purchased for a while. It was a dead issue, but it was never fully gone, but it certainly has been revived. Um, the, the, the benefit of an indulgence is uh, available, quote, under certain conditions through the actions of the church. So now we have Christ as the mediator, Mary as the mediator, and the church, too, with your money as a mediator as well. You can see how they're moving further and further away from what the scriptures teach. And yes, today, the Catholic Church does criticize the past abuses of the sale of indulgences, but it was Pope Benedict, not this Pope, the one just before him, who in 2009 <clears throat> reintroduced indulgences with this particular stipulation. He said, you cannot buy an indulgence today, but you can earn an indulgence by giving contributions and doing good acts. Can't buy it, but you can give contributions. 
But of course, that indulgence is limited to one indulgence per sinner per day. Watch how much you sin. You only get one a day. And of course, over the history of indulgences, people realize, hey, listen, um, I have some money in my pocket. Um, I sinned big. I'm going to have to buy an indulgence or two or three. And they did. And they said, well, now I'm forgiven. And they said, well, you know something. There's um, there's a party going on next weekend. I'm planning on sinning. I could buy some indulgences today and sin tomorrow. And I'll be fine. And that's what people did. The Vatican was paid for by indulgences. Moving further and further away from the scriptures, one author said this, this exploits not only the souls of men, but exploits God himself, if that were possible. The church at the time taught that this now corrupt church must rule God's kingdom on this earth. And any deviation from this church was a deviation from God and worthy of death. And this is what happened to Martin Luther. He was worthy of death because he deviated from the teachings of the church. You'll recall his words. He said, here I stand, I can do no other. Those are bold words, right? Here I stand, I can do no other. This is when, according to Dr. Stephen Nichols, that God, the God of surprises, chose this one neurotic monk to change the world. A German monk named Martin Luther on October 31st, 1517. And what Luther did after having studied these two verses and more, but these in particular, Luther pointed out a list of 95 beliefs and practices of the church that violated the scriptures. Up until recently, they were posted downstairs. They're gone now, but maybe you read them. These practices, these beliefs, simply went against what the Bible said. It's that simple. And Luther was not trying to divide the church. He was trying to reform the church. He was trying to bring the church back to what the scriptures say. You see, Luther read his Bible. And this is what he read. And these truths cut into his heart, and he could be silent no longer. He read from Romans chapter 3, verse 22. This is what it reads. The righteousness of God through faith, not works, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And of course, he read Romans 1.17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Luther took those 95 theses and he nailed them to the door of the Wittenberg church. That was the bulletin board of the day. He wasn't being rude or disrespectful. I'm just going to put this right here on the door. No, this is what everybody did. This is how you conveyed information. It was part of the social media of the time. You go to the door of the church and read the latest events. And that's what he did. And having done that, Luther actually ignited the Reformation. Now, please keep in mind that Luther was far, far, far from being a perfect man. 
In all reality, God often uses crooked sticks to make straight lines. Luther was one of them. I am too. I think you are as well. I don't think that either one of us, you or me, would have ever chosen Martin Luther to be an instrument by which the church would be brought back to its biblical roots. If you read his biography, you will say this man is definitely different, definitely neurotic. And yet God used him and his word and what a job they did. And all this occurred within a certain era politically. There was a political environment that actually helped Martin Luther. In Great Britain, King Henry VIII was still without his heir in England. And so he wanted to divorce his Spanish wife, Catherine of Aragon, and instead marry the English 26-year-old Anne Boleyn, who happened to be a lady-in-waiting in the queen, Queen's court. And hopefully Anne Boleyn would produce for him a male heir for the throne. But it was Pope Clement to whom the king had asked, can you give me an annulment? Can you give me a divorce? It was the Pope Clement who refused to annul this 24-year marriage or grant the divorce. And so what does King Henry do? He establishes his own church. King Henry was willing to side as well with the movement of the Reformation. He was able to say, yes, go Luther, go Martin. We want this because we want the Catholic Church to lose its power. And so now you have Martin Luther, you have those others who are believing as he has. The Holy Spirit is moving among the people in Germany. It's spreading into other countries. There's a revival in the hearts of Christians. And more and more people are saying, yes, I see what the Bible is saying. We are not saved by our good works. We're not saved by being religious. We are not saved by somehow being infused with more and more righteousness because we do good things but rather it's a matter of faith and grace. And then King Henry says, yes, I'll side with you because I want the Pope to lose. And so the Reformation took off. The Anglican Church is birthed. King Henry VIII becomes the, the head of the Anglican Church. Here we know it as the Episcopal Church. And today there it is still, both exist. And in some circles, the Anglican Church is very biblical. The Episcopal Church is still biblical. But in most cases, they are not. They have, too, moved away from the Scriptures. Well, let me explain to you what the Reformation was based on. Let me show to you the groundwork of the Reformation. The Reformation was spurred on um, also by William Tyndale with the invention of the printing press. Uh, with it, Tyndale printed, of course, the Bible. And he did so in a common language so that the common people could read it in their own language. Now people could read it. Now people could hear it, not in the Latin, but in their own language. And now, for the first time, they could analyze what the Bible says. And they could see for themselves, not what the priest said, but what the Bible says. 
And as they read from the Bible, they began to see that what they read and what was being taught at the church were not the same. They saw that what God said, in fact, was far different. And that the church was devolving. It was breaking down the truth of God. And there was being, the people were being steered further and further away from the truth of the scriptures. With the printing press came an increased interest in Bible translations uh, into other languages as well. Um, in German, in English, and various languages of that region. So that now all men could hear and read the Bible in their language. In the language that they knew, in the language that they spoke. And as you can imagine, God's truth in Europe spread. The word of God was embraced. It was devoured. People could not get enough of God's word. I want to emphasize here the problem of humans when it comes to the scriptures. My friends, as soon as we take our finger off the text, there's a breakdown. As soon as we start to add to the text, there's a breakdown. As soon as we start eliminating from the text, there's a breakdown. As soon as we start putting our traditions in place of the text, there's a breakdown. And the result is, is that we move further and further and further away from what God wants of us and what God has written for us. We've moved further and further away from God's blessings as well. But not only that, but if it is not the word of God that is controlling us, then it will be our traditions and our human sinfulness. And the church will be made up of not only sinful people, but sinful people acting like sinful people. Don't get me wrong, we are sinful people. But because we hold to the scriptures, this is what moderates our behavior, our conduct, the scriptures. You take away the scriptures and all we'll have are sinful people acting very sinfully. Some of you have been injured by the church because of people ignoring the scriptures. Stick to the scriptures and you'll discover not only God's truth but God's blessing. As hearts are changed, as minds are changed, homes will then be changed, communities will be changed. During the time of Luther, there was also a German nationalism. In fact, some authors write that Luther was the first pop star. Social media, that was, you know, posting his 95 theses on the church door, that was their social media of the time, made him very famous. And the people supported him, even protected him. There was a, a, a gang of friends who he unknowingly was kidnapped by, Luther was kidnapped by, in order to rescue him. And Luther had to live in the castle under a false name just to stay alive as a knight that said he was a knight. And there he lived out his days. Yes, the people supported him and protected him. Why? Because he was giving to them the word of God. 
even though the church had already condemned him, had declared him a heretic, and he was to be burned at the stake, and they said, no, he's giving to us what the word of God actually says. But most of all, most of all, the Holy Spirit was moving in the hearts of men throughout Europe. Uh, there, was, there, there was this eternal renewal within the hearts of so many in the church. There was a thirst and hunger for God's truth burning in their hearts. The harvest was now ready. Just as we read in Matthew chapter 10, the harvest is ready, the workers are few. Well, Luther and the reformers were those workers. And eventually those workers multiplied. And they would go out and give the gospel. And by faith, thousands and thousands of people were saved. Certainly we all know that the church in Europe is in need of reformation again. The gospel is barely known in that part of the world today. Through the Reformation, the church did change. And what we got as a result of the Reformation was Protestantism. Protestantism means those who protested. We are Protestants. We have protested against the teachings of that other church. And through the Reformation, we have today churches around the world who are proclaiming the gospel of Christ and salvation by faith, not works. And Jesus Christ as the redeemer and mediator. And that we need to come to him and bow our lives to him. Not that we need to work at it, not that we need to pay anything, but simply say, Lord, take my life. Be my savior. I repent and I give my life to you. Make me your child. And today, many parts of the world are being revolutionized by this simple gospel message that was handed down through Luther, not because of tradition, but because of Romans 1, 16 and 17. And, and, and though the, the conditions today uh, are different than what we saw back in 500 years or so ago. I do think today, not only in Europe, but even here in the States and even around the world, the church can use some reformation. In fact, we are in need of reformation. Keep in mind that reformation begins with the individual. Reformation begins when you begin to see your need for Christ and how you need to live your life according to Christ's word. And when you're doing that, and then we are doing that, we will see a reformation in our church and in our community. It begins with the individual. Don't wait for the other person. It needs to begin with you. With you. Right, let's take a look at how the church, the churches of the time today, need to be renewed. It's often said that the church here in America is quickly becoming a mile wide, but an inch deep. There's no substance to us. Keep in mind that what happened in the past in Europe can very easily happen here, and I think it is happening in America. 
the events and the beliefs of those days are far different than today. But the results are the same. They're equal. My friends, beware that you do not become like the rest of the landscape. That we do not become like everyone else, but rather that we become like Christ. That we emulate the scriptures. What we see here Hearts need to be transformed. And the same truth continues to change. The same truths back then continue to change hearts of men today. We have to believe that God is still at work. And we have to listen for his calling in our ears and our hearts. What is God saying to you? Don't ignore him. Don't get so used to him calling you that it becomes just a ringing in your ears that you learn to ignore. He is still pouring out his spirit. He is still calling people to himself. He is building his church locally, yes, and universally around the world. And people are coming to him by faith. They are believing. And I call on you to believe as well. Place your faith in Christ. Grow in that faith. Romans 10, 17 says this, So faith comes from hearing, from hearing through the words of Christ, from hearing the gospel. We cannot underestimate and we should never diminish the importance of these words. Faith comes by hearing. People will believe in Christ only when you, you expose them to the word of God, to the gospel of Christ. Without hearing the gospel, people will not come to Christ. They will not come to faith. Romans 10, 14 says, How then... Will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, without someone proclaiming, without someone telling them? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Do you have beautiful feet? The implications here, I believe, are obvious. The Lord is counting on his people to be the means by which others will hear the gospel of Christ. I'm not asking you to go to China. I'm not asking you to go to Cuba. That's next year. I'm asking you to simply take the gospel to your surroundings now. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Back to Romans 1.17. For it is, for, or rather, for in it, that is in the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Christ's righteousness is revealed to you by faith in Jesus Christ when the gospel is spoken, when the gospel is offered. Now, the second half of that verse reads this way. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And this is the key portion of the text that revolutionized the soul of Martin Luther and so many millions since. The righteous shall live by faith. If you were to read that as an adverb, it would simply be saying the righteous lives his life, her life, as someone who is always trusting in God. I don't know what tomorrow will bring, but I trust in the Lord. That's if you read it as an adverb. 
But if you read it as an adjective, it reads this way. The righteous are given life by faith. The righteous are given life. How? By faith in Jesus Christ. So how do we know? Is it an adverb or an adjective? Well, you read the context. It's one of the basic principles of studying the scriptures. Context, context, context. And the context tells us that it's an adjective. That what it's saying here is that the righteous will receive, will become righteous, right? If they place their faith in Christ. They're given life by faith. Of course, we can compare it to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, where it says there that the righteousness of God has been revealed. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You see, it's an adjective. Not only do the children of God live a life by which they can trust in God, but rather more directly and here more importantly, the righteous, that is, God's children, become God's children by faith in Jesus Christ. You need to place your faith in Christ. Not for my sake, but for your sake, for your, the sake of your soul. To believe. To believe. Away with just religious profession. Away with just religious practice. Yeah, that, that will get you nowhere. You need faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. And of course, if you have faith in Christ, it will change how you live. But spiritual life, my friends, is obtained not by how you live, but in who you believe. Faith in Christ is the means of life. The one who by faith is righteous shall live, is what we read there. And as Martin Luther was studying the text, suddenly he came to the realization. He began to understand what the book of Romans is teaching him. This here, he said, is about a righteousness that God, in his grace, is offering to all sinners. The sinner is to receive it passively. Christ does all the work. It is not for those who would try to obtain it actively. Christ does all the work. It's not your effort. And it is to be received by God-given faith. And by God's doing, you then become reconciled to God. Whereas the Roman Catholic Church taught that taking the sacraments would make people more saved, more righteous. The Bible doesn't say that. Not even close. Luther, reading the, the original language here, the Greek, came to understand that we are not made righteous by our own efforts, but rather God makes us righteous by his efforts. We are declared righteous. God looks at us now in Christ and regards us as righteous. God knows that none of us are truly righteous, but it is the righteousness of Christ in me, the righteousness of Christ to you, that allows him to declare you righteous. And what you must do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that person, you, will know his righteousness as well. 
And some people often say, well, you mean that God freely gives me his righteousness by grace? Even though I don't deserve it? And the answer is yes. It's grace. You don't deserve it. It's what grace is all about. You're given what you don't deserve. Has anybody ever been so gracious to you and given to you something you knew you didn't deserve? That's what God does. But it's not something. He gives you everything. He gives you new life. He gives you a new soul. Grace. Luther said, when I discovered that, you know what we're talking about here, when I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost and the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. Romans 1.17 The gospel reveals the righteousness of God from faith for faith. The more we grow in our understanding of Christ and believing in true religion, the more our faith increases. By faith in Christ we are saved and in faith we grow. From faith for faith. John Calvin said that this phrase marks the daily progress of every believer. And this ought to be the goal of each one of us who profess Jesus Christ. That yes, he has given us faith by which we would believe now that we would grow in faith. And if that is your goal in life, you will find that you will be changing. In fact, your heart will be transforming. Your circumstances may very well be the same, but you will see your circumstances from a completely different perspective. You'll have a new lens. And you will grow in faith In order to grow in faith, you must hold and be committed to what is true. Not tradition, not hearsay, not human speculation or human spirituality, but rather, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? We have reason to be excited about God's truth, don't we? I think we do. My wife shared a, a quote from Randy Alcorn this week with me. I want to share it with you. He says, everybody wants to know about where they're going. If we want our children or our grandchildren to be more excited about heaven than about the Grand Canyon or about Disney World or about summer camp, let's open the Bible to them and talk to them about the new Earth's attractions. Let's talk to them about this Christ and what he's promised, and what he's doing. My friends, God's grace gives us the freedom to face the truth about God and then face the truth about ourselves as we study his word. Don't be afraid of what you're going to discover there. It'll be truths that will change you, transform you, improve you, grow you, give you hope. Read it. Eat it. Know it. Knowing that we are fully loved at all times by our God, God's love for you is not going to change. And once you become a child of God, he will never say no more of you. He calls us to come to him with everything so that we can grow in faith and experience the joy of being in Christ where one day we will drop our anchor and say we're home. Let me pray.